The Last Word with Matt Cooper. So we're starting the week trending a little bit earlier. We're delighted to be joined by journalist Lise Hand and by Larry Donnelly, uh, who is a law lecturer at the University of Galway and, of course, political columnist for the journal.ie. Can we start with a story that has got a media outlet gripped into quite a bit of bother? An article that purported to give details of the asylum application of the suspect in last week's attack on schoolchildren in Parnell Square in Dublin, except... It got the wrong man, Lise. Um, yeah, and this is particularly egregious, I think, because anytime a, a news outlet gets something wrong, at the best of times, it's you know, it's worrisome and so on, but accidents happen and people are human. But I think when there's reportage around a rapidly folding, very inflamed event, when tempers, passions are running high, literal violence on the streets... I think it behoves every single news outlet or anybody who considers themselves to be a professional journalist really has a massive responsibility to get it right and not get it first, get it right. Um, And we see the the real-time results of something like uh, this reportage getting it completely wrong is now that there has to be guard protection not only on the the person who was was basically identified, not, not named, but... Details enough detail was put in the the original article that other people were able to identify him and name him online, and now his both his home and his workplace are both under um, guard of protection, which is. And he had absolutely nothing to do with this horrendous offence that took place in Parnell Square. Absolutely nothing. The only thing that himself and the the alleged uh, attacker have in common are their nationality and the fact they went through the process to get. Uh, to get naturalisation, so that was it. That there's no other. Um, so this was, this was bad, and I think maybe also compounded by the fact that I think in a in a case like that, you, a, a media organisation comes out of their hands up and says, "Look, this is like we apologise unreservedly and deeply, and lessons will be learned." But instead, I think there was quite a, how should I say it, a fairly hostile pushback. I think from the you know from the organisation as well. And uh, it's a right mess. Larry Donnelly, what do you make of this? Uh, yeah, I mean, th- this was a, a failure of journalism at a, a very key point in time. Uh, you know, especially with, when tensions running high and everything we saw happen last Thursday. Uh, deeply, deeply regrettable. Uh, I, I know Lee says at first the response was combative. I do note that afterwards uh, there was a more contrite uh, reaction to it, and I think that's entirely appropriate. But uh, it points to the need more than anything, I think, uh, for double, triple, quadruple checking every single thing you get uh, in this context, especially, as I say, where fevers were running high. And again, uh, the country was uh, in a state of upheaval, and I don't think this contributed anything. I think uh, it's a very sad moment, to be honest. But it also plays to the fact that I think a lot of people, and I know there been some people getting in touch with this programme saying, why aren't you reporting this? Why aren't you reporting that? Things that they're seeing on social media. And the reasons we're not reporting that is, is that we do not know them to be true. And there has been speculation, particularly in relation to that incident, which is entirely wrong, which we would be irresponsible to broadcast on air. And yet people seem to believe that in some way, what they call the mainstream media is hiding things from them. I, I, absolutely, I absolutely take that point. That is, you know, that's absolutely correct in terms of the current context. But uh, I think that there is a further point. If we can take a step back from what happened 
uh, last Thursday, there is no doubt that there are people who feel like uh, the mainstream media does not reflect uh, what they see and what their lives are like every single day. Uh, and that's why they are looking to alternative media, to other sources, to places where they think uh, they will get what they would say is the truth. And this is a challenge for uh, democracies, I suppose, throughout the West and challenges for uh, the media, there's no question about that. And uh, look, you know, how do you deal with this? How do you solve this? You know, we can't, we can't certainly can't do it uh, in a short radio segment. But do I think, for instance, that the entity involved here is the enemy of the people? No, I don't. I really don't. And I take objection to uh, some of the harsher criticisms that have been leveled against it. Perhaps it's because uh, I'm from America and I, I have a certain view about the media. Uh, but I do not view them as public enemy number one. But in this, sta- in, in this point in time, uh, I think they made an egregious error. Yeah, this, some people want to know the identity of this. This is an online organisation called uh, Grift.ie uh, and I'm not sure who actually is behind it, who actually funds it. This is something else that perhaps most media ownership is known. Do we know who owns this particular organisation? No, um, not really. And But just to sort of pick up on a point Larry made there, I think that I think one of the answers is proper boots on the ground journalism. I think that the Dublin Enquirer newspaper has been doing absolutely superb work because they had people out on the ground talking to people and then echoing their views through a an unbiased filter, like in the in the publication. And I think that's a part of the problem is that there's just no trust because newspapers have been decimated, newsrooms have been decimated, and people are just doing things remotely online, getting things wrong, and then also. People just don't know what their own particular agenda or point of view is. Um, and I think, again, there's this sort of blurring of the line between what a citizen journalist is. Now, there are genuinely people out there that are, and it's very valuable to have everybody has a phone, everybody can record something, and then that can be picked up by, say, by by the wider media. But, like, this term citizen journalist is is also used an awful lot by a lot of bad actors that are, say, would be of the far right, that they claim to be, as Larry said, sort of speaking the truth to power and, and you know, and telling the truth. And But they are basically, ju- it's just a, a stream of consciousness from their point of view. I mean, I, if I picked up a spanner, could I call myself a citizen plumber? Would you think, would you let me go into your house to fix your boiler? You bloody would not. So, okay, this listener says, um, John McGurk is the owner of... Gripped.ie. It's funded by the readers. John McGurk, of course, was, well, he's been a political activist for years. He was involved first in Ogrefina Fall, then he was in Fine Gael, uh, then he was involved working for Declan Gandley. And the last time that he would have appeared on this programme would have been as an anti abortion referendum campaigner back in 2018. Uh, so that is the person who is the face, I suppose, of Gripped.ie. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, for the record, I know John. I've known him for a long time. Uh, at a personal level, I like John. I, I don't agree with a lot of his politics, uh, but but that's that's that. And, and look, uh, I think he'd be the first one to say, and he has said it, that he has made uh, a grievous error uh, on this occasion. Uh, but you know, I I just I have a little bit of difficulty with some of the the, the rhetoric that has been flying around. Uh, ever since then. And one one thing I think John makes a fair point when he says uh, this idea that what information should be released to the public and what should not and what role do journalists have uh, in that space. Uh, and I think John raises a fair question. I'm not sure I have the answers to any of that, but I do think he raises a fair question when he says that. 
as long as the information is it's accurate, accurate rather than actually putting a story into the public domain because you want it to be uh, true. 100%, Matt, and, and, and I, again, he has made an egregious error in this front. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Elon Musk, though, because it's been another week in which Elon Musk's behaviour has uh, left itself... Well, he hasn't done well, and particularly in relation to comments he made about Leo Varadkar, I think, as well, that Leo Varadkar hates the Irish, even though, and Sinn Féin TDs were amongst those to the forefront in actually saying this is wrong. But does Elon Musk look like a man who is actually losing the plot to a certain extent based on an interview he gave at a New York Times function during the week? Yeah, that was quite extraordinary. I mean, he... um he came out, and to use Larry's words earlier, in a combative mood, to, to say the least of it. And he, like, he essentially, I mean, advertisers are fleeing the, the, the platform anyway because it has lurched incredibly to the, I mean, to, to the to the right, far right. It's just absolutely awash now with conspiracy theorists and and racists and generally unpleasant individuals, you know, um, and. Advertisers have been fleeing the site because some of the big names have been linked. They found to their horror their their ads and products been been sort of sitting next to a, a neo Nazi, some neo Nazi sort of fomenting civil war. Um, and in this interview, he basically spoke directly to his advertisers and told them they could go and f themselves essentially, and made a particular reference to somebody who is widely believed to be Bob Iger, who's the head of Disney, who again have. Uh, they want one of the people who have been pulling back on advertising at the platform. But, you know, since he bought this exactly a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, it was October of last year for, what, $44 billion? I mean, the value has just plummeted. Mm. And this, but it's also worrying because even his comments about Leo Varadkar, um, it's very worrying that a man of his immense power that controls a huge amount of the sort of satellite communications around around the globe. I mean, he, you know, he's not just sort of another rich guy that's just a bit crazy. I mean, this guy, you know, has has real time power, um, and making interfering and making comments about the elected leader of a democracy. I mean, it's like butt out, Elon. Uh, Elon, this isn't you know, you don't have a dog in this fight. Yeah, it's just a wrong comment. And you'd actually say that one of the first people who should be banned from Twitter for deliberately putting misinformation on the website is its owner, Larry. Absolutely. And I mean, Elon Musk, it goes back to what you said at the beginning. You'd have to wonder what is going on in his mind. Uh, he seems determined, to, you know, he already has virtually ruined uh, Twitter, which once was, let's face it, it was a really good platform for people who love the news, who love to hear breaking stories, who love to hear viewpoints. He's really driven that into the ground, and he hasn't made any money at the same time. So you'd have to wonder what he, he's at. But one thing I will say about uh, Twitter and all these social media platforms is something I've been banging on against for, uh, for a while, is the conflict when it comes to people on this side of the Atlantic seeing things that they don't like, that none of us like, and saying, how does this happen? And what happens is an internal battle between the legal teams based in the United States where these companies emanate from versus the legal teams on this side of the Atlantic. In the United States, we lawyers are trained to reverence an absolutist view of the First Amendment, which means absolutely anything goes. Anything goes without restraint. Whereas here, there's a totally different point of view. Yeah, but if you also look at one of the things, and it's not on our list, but I'm sure you're aware of it, Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon this week deciding that they were going to address the riots in Ireland. And it was just piece of 
misinformation lie, misinformation lie. So you can say yes, you can say whatever you want, but surely there's a responsibility on people to tell the truth. And then you get that utter grifter, Russell Brand, who's now on YouTube, citing Conor McGregor as some sort of informed expert on what's happening in Ireland. Yeah, it's it's absolute garbage. And one would wonder if some of these decisions from the United States Supreme Court that were issued, which basically, again, say anything goes, one would wonder if some of those justices now could revisit them in light of social media and the ability to spread mistruths, lies that could have harmful uh, realities for society uh, on social media. One wonders if they would decide them differently. Of course, the other thing that strikes me, why does Elon Musk think it's actually that people have to advertise on Twitter. Surely it's up to anyone to decide whether they want to advertise on Twitter or not. It's not a given that you're supposed to, is it? No, of course not. It's not a given at all. And it's, it's becoming less of a given, you know, uh, you know, as time goes on and as the, the platform continues to deteriorate. And a lot of that has to do with one of the very first things that Elon Musk did when he took over. It was eviscerated their trust and, and safety. I wonder how Helen McEntee will get on if she actually gets to meet anyone from well, Twitter. It's hard to know. I mean, you know, the irony, again, the, the, I mean, it, given that another one of Elon's first things was anytime a member of the media contacted him by email, the response was an automatic poo emoji. So, you know, that's basically from the top, that sort of shows the the, the, you know, the, the official com- company attitude to engaging with media. Now, when it comes to engaging directly with politicians, obviously the Irish, the, the people who are here in Ireland would be much more responsible. Um, and I'm sure they're very willing to engage. But again, the orders come from the top and the, the, the policies and the attitude towards this kind of engagement with public figures comes from the top. And they're not exactly getting sterling leadership there. Okay, something else I want to move to, but it is sort of aligned to what happened in Dublin last weekend and the rioting on Thursday. The following day, the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, announced that he was requisitioning two uh, water cannon from Northern Ireland for the PSNI. And that led to a terrifically funny piece, I thought, by Newton Emerson in the Irish Times yesterday about the use of water cannon, because um, I think it's fair to say, at least, that maybe you might describe them now as being like water pistols <laughs> rather than as something that would actually knock people off their feet in the way they're yeah. used in the North. I mean, there's a wonderful line in the piece, sort of saying that, you know, they obviously did their due diligence uh, first and they found that there, not only had there never been a fatality due to a water can- cannon, uh, the greatest danger was falling over, he says, or getting grit in your eye. <laughs> is, you know, literally, is that's actually the most dangerous thing. I mean, and then also just make sure the temperature, so the you know, is is actually okay, so they don't the poor little darlings. Well, don't scald them, but don't make it the ice yeah, bucket I mean, challenge they, either, they, is they it? Just, I mean, they might as well just hand out a bar of soap for, to every bring a bar of soap for every protester. I mean, it's you know the whole notion of. You know, water cannons should fill you with fear when, when, when it rumbles into view, really, rather than just, you know, sort of provide, you know, the butt, the butt of it or the, the punchline for jokes. But, Larry, it was interesting as well that he did say when the water cannon was brought in initially, well, two things that are very interesting in Newton Emerson's piece, that it was regarded as a progressive measure because at least it got away from the rubber bullets that were fired often with fatal effect mm. in the north. But that also that actually nationalists quite enjoyed the use of the water cannon because it tended to be used on loyalist marches <laughs> and they actually were even helping to supply the water from the hoses yeah. for the water cannons. Absolutely. Uh, Newton's column is brilliant in terms of, I, I suppose, satire. And, you know, as usual, he, he's very funny in that way. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, he makes he makes some very good points that water cannons certainly are not a panacea. But there is a, a deeper point. I think it probably comes back to what you said initially there, that they were better than rubber bullets. And my one reflection on 
uh, what happened, the horrendous events uh, of last Thursday in Dublin, uh, is that you know perhaps water cannons might have been had some deterrent effect if they were turned up a little bit. And isn't that infinitely better than what I could conceive of as being an American police reaction to what happened uh, in Dublin uh, last Thursday? Of course, that wouldn't happen here. I can't imagine whatever happened here. But if those events were to happen in the United States, my fear would be um, that members of the police force would open fire, and that would be absolutely horrific. Whereas water cannons would be some sort of halfway point in there, which would have le- less than obviously less than fatal consequences, but could deter looting, rioting, etc. Well, I think the argument as well is that preparedness is necessary because I mean I'm old and grizzled enough to remember covering the uh, the Lansdowne riot. In 1995, and, yeah, I was there. I was actually yeah. in the upper stand, the west stand, about six yards away from where it all started. That yeah. wasn't the most pleasant place to be. No, it certainly wasn't. But I mean, I was booted out onto the streets to go and you know to go around and talk to see, just get the mood. This is around lunchtime of the day of the of the match. And going back into the office, I was working in Sunday End at the time, um, which is on Middle Abbey Street, and I'd gone up and down all the pubs around O'Connell Street. And I mean, I came back in Ashen and I mean, I wasn't, uh, I don't scare easy. And mm. I just came in and said, there's going to be murder at mm. this thing. I mean, there was quite, I was talking to members of Combat 18 and things that said, no, we've no ticket. We've just come over for the, we've come over for the, just for the rook. And, uh, and so, you know, and, the, but the police were caught completely on the back foot again with love. Well, well, I think, I think a few at the time of the Lansdowne riots, a few of the Guardi waded in with the batons and were being cheered on <laughs> by the Irish supporters. <laughs> I remember watching it very clearly. Okay, we've got to take a break. Lee Sand and Larry Donnelly, stay with us. One of the things we're going to talk about in the next section is a hundred-year-old man who died this week, the late Henry Kissinger, who I met once and had a very interesting chat with. We'll talk about him when we come back. Week trending, Lee Sand and Larry Donnelly with us, and we will get to Henry Kissinger in a moment, but before we do so, we spent a lot of time in yesterday's programme talking about the death of Shane McGowan, but Lise, you knew him very well also, didn't you? I did, and I, many of the times I spent in his company was in, also in the company of the excellent Marion McKeown, I have to add. Um, yeah, I, I think the first time I met him, I'll just keep it fairly short because it's a very long story, but was actually at Top of the Pops when uh, they were performing uh, the Irish Rover with the Dubliners in I think, 1987 and we all flew over uh, I flew over with the Dubliners and we got into Shepherd's Bush and it was really early morning flights so we, it was we probably got into the studio at around you know into the building uh, at around like nine or half nine in the morning went downstairs and I still I still vividly can picture like he was standing in this huge big kind of dressing room and he had a bottle of red wine in his hand and he walks over to me and he obviously would have known everyone else he obviously knew the Dubliners and Jim Hand and so on no relation who was their manager and uh he just ha- he goes hello and he hands me the bottle of red wine. So being a you know hardy enough rock chick, I took a, a you know a decent <laughs> slug out of it. And I think that was a test to sort of see what kind of like you know would I be prepared to sort of go with the flow on the day. And it was just such a brilliant day. And they were it was just such an incongruous sight. The two of them like you know the two bands, these madmen, just tearing it up in the studio. And it there was just such energy and it was just also hilarious. But the one story I will just uh, touch on is the when Fairy Tale of New York was released in 1988. Um, I went to see them. They fl- a few rock writers were brought over to see them in Barrowlands in Glasgow, fantastic venue. Mm. About three days, it was the Sunday before Christmas. We were in the so the, we were in the hotel in Glasgow the morning after the gig. Um, they had played Fairy Tale of New York in, and it was one of the few first times they probably performed it live. 
And I still remember the, the goose pump bumps on everybody because when they sang the line, you know, I could have been someone, the whole of Barrowlands just sang and so could anyone. And we all went, OK, this is a special song. The next morning, we were, the next afternoon, we're in the hotel. Everybody's in the foyer of the hotel waiting for the, ch- the British charts, the UK charts to be released. And we're all in the foyer of the hotel, deeply, deeply hungover. And their manager, Frank Murray, just comes, walks down the steps and into the, and he, and he went, number two. And there was just this silence. And I think it was Spider went over to the piano in the foyer and he just starts playing it. And we all stood around and sang it, you know. But they were genuinely gutted that it didn't get to them. I mean, they were really gutted. And I would put every shirt in my wardrobe on it being number one this Christmas, and I hope it is. Larry, bit yeah. of Bostonian, how familiar were you with the Pogues music? Uh, very familiar. They were, they were huge. I, I remember any time Shane McGowan was in Boston, the Irish bar owners would have, literally have a competition as to who could get him into their pub <laughs> and spend the most amount of time there. But I have to say, whenever I think of Shane McGowan, I think of my brother. If there is a bigger Shane McGowan fan on the planet, uh, I'd like to meet him or her because my brother owns every single thing that has ever been recorded by Shane McGowan. My brother owns it and has paid through the teeth for it. Going back to when it was Shane McGowan and the Nips, he has every single cassette, single vinyl, everything you can imagine and he was an absolute morning yesterday. I think he took the day off work and just sat there with his albums all day. Ah, listen, stay there, both of you, because I need to go to David Raleigh in Limerick, who's able to join us now. Uh, the case involving uh, Kyle Hayes, the Limerick hurler, tell us about the outcome of the jury deliberations, please, Dave. Evening, Matt. Well, a judge uh, this evening warned five-time All-Ireland winning Limerick hurler Kyle Hayes that he faces a possible jail sentence after the Limerick hurler was convicted this evening by a jury of two counts of violent disorder, one inside and one outside the Icon nightclub in Limerick City four years ago. Uh, Mr Hayes was acquitted by the jury of seven men and five women uh, following a two-week trial of a charge of assault causing harm to Killian McCarthy uh, outside the Icon nightclub. Um, a second accused, Craig Cosgrave, who's 24, from Caharali and Grange, who it was alleged had thrown punches inside the nightclub while trying to defend himself and the uh, victim. The alleged victim, Mr McCarthy, was found not guilty of a single count of violent disorder. Uh, It was alleged, Matt, that Mr Hayes uh, was part of a group of males that struck Killian McCarthy on the dance floor of the Icon on Upper Denmark Street in the early hours of October 28, 2019. Uh, Mr Hayes denied allegations by the state that he had become upset earlier on the night when he saw Killian McCarthy and Craig Cosgrave, who were friends, chatting to two women in Smith bar which is located on the ground floor of the nightclub. Uh, Mr McCarthy told the trial that Mr Hayes warned him and Mr Cosgrave to stay the F away from two women who they were chatting to and when Mr McCarthy said he tried to explain to Mr Hayes that he and Mr Cosgrave and the two females knew one another from their school days, Mr Hayes had shouted aggressively at, at him, do you know who the F I am? And Mr McCarthy said he believed Mr Hayes was looking for a fight so he walked away with Mr. Cosgrave to the nightclub upstairs. And on the dance floor of the nightclub, the state alleged that uh, Kyle Hayes and another man approached Mr. Cosgrave on the dance floor, uh, punching Mr. McCarthy several times in the head, and that others joined in, and that Mr. McCarthy sustained more blows to the back of his head, uh, that he'd sustained a black eye and a bloodied face. Uh, witnesses uh, told the court they saw Mr. McCarthy emerge from the nightclub uh, with a swollen uh, eye 
and blood on his face. And the prosecution had alleged that Kyle Hayes followed Mr. McCarthy out of the club and that he had joined a mob who chased and kicked and stamped on Mr. McCarthy on Upper Denmark Street. Two Gardaí Matt gave evidence that when they arrived on the scene, they saw Kyle Hayes kicking a man who was cowering on the ground on the street. One of those Gardaí, Detective Garda Dean Landers, uh, said he suspected Kyle Hayes was the male culprit because of the veracity in which he was kicking the man on the ground, he told the court. He said he saw Kyle Hayes throw no, numerous kicks into the male who was lying on the ground and that this male screamed for Kyle Hayes to stop. Uh, another guard said that he was in no doubt that he saw Kyle Hayes kicking a male on the street. Um, but David, can you just clarify again for us two things? One, the actual verdicts that were reached by the jury having heard all of that evidence? So after hearing all those allegations, Matt, uh, the jury returned a guilty verdict for two counts of violent disorder against uh, Kyle Hayes one violent disorder charge inside the nightclub and one violent disorder outside the nightclub. Uh, they acquitted Kyle Hayes of a, of a charge of assault causing harm to Killian McCarthy. Okay. And, they, and they acquitted Craig Cosgrave of a charge of violent disorder. Now, what is the sentence for this? So Judge Dermot Sheehan said Mr. Hayes' status had now changed. He said... Such offences, i.e. violent disorder, which Kyle Hayes has now been convicted of, uh, he's, the judge said if these offences are contested, they normally carry a custodial sentence. He ordered uh, Mr. Hayes's passport to be immediately provided to Gardaí and that he not apply for new travel documents. He ordered Mr. Hayes must obey a nightly curfew of between 10.30pm and 6am and he also ordered Mr. Hayes to keep the peace and not commit any offences while he considered a sentence. He said that um, violent disorder in a nightclub where there was many people socialising on a dance floor was extremely uh, dangerous. So he said he would, uh, given the circumstances at the time of year, uh, he allowed Mr. Hayes on bail while he considered his sentence. So Mr. Uh, Hayes was remanded on bail for sentence on the 19th of January next year. Thank you very much for that, David Raleigh. It'll be interesting with that curfew at half ten because all the Limerick hurlers are being presented with their All-Ireland Senior Hurling Medals tonight at a function in a dare manner. So that's going to be an interesting evening for the Limerick players. They certainly have lots to talk about and also his potential availability to the Limerick team as they go for the five in a row in 2024. OK, let's get back to the week trending with Lise Hand and Larry Donnelly. Larry, there was a listener when I mentioned Henry Kissinger before the break who said well you're American and will be defending him anyway. Not all Americans speak well of Henry Kissinger do they? No I, I mean I, I think his uh, his legacy is decidedly mixed. Um, you know let, let me maybe start with the good. Um, his was an extraordinary life. You know he, he got out of Germany he and his family just before uh, the ravages of the Holocaust and was welcomed into the United States. And I have to say, I think that was the print, the single animating impulse of his life was the United States and loyalty to the United States. And what that wrought was uh, some good, 
but an awful lot of bad as well. Uh, if you look at some of the things he did in terms of, uh, you know, opening up diplomatic channels with China, uh, the arms race, uh, you know, a little mediation in terms of the Middle East, uh, th those were good. Those yeah, were he would regard those as pragmatic solutions. Realpolitik was known as. Absolutely. And just like those things were, everything he did was, you know, to the advancement of the United States and this idea that the United States almost could do no wrong uh, and whatever about the rest of the world, the United States' interests had to come first. And here's where the other side comes in. Uh, and the other side, to my view, was excusing, condoning, standing aside as uh, horrific atrocities uh, occurred, uh, you know, in various parts uh, of the world. Uh, and the thing is, he had the world of leader. He had the, he had the ears of people around the world. He had the ears of the American presidents. He had the, the ears uh, of leaders uh, throughout the world. Indeed, up until his death, you know, even at 99, he was still traveling to China. The Biden administration was saying, this guy can go in and get meetings with anyone. We can't get these meetings. So he had that sort of power and influence, uh, but he didn't always use it for good. So uh, a towering intellect, uh, someone who's, you know, I suppose, influence on the world, on world affairs cannot be understated, but a decidedly mixed legacy. Lisa, I was just saying off air to you as well that He's a man who I would have thought of carpet bombing of Cambodia mm. uh, for his involvement in the uh, Pinochet um, coup in Chile. Mm. Uh, there would have been the supporting Pakistan in Bangladesh in the early 1970s. Hundreds of thousands of people perhaps maybe have died as a result of the implicit support he gave to administrations that he felt were anti-communist and acting in favour of American interests. And yet I sat beside him at lunch one day and found him extraordinarily good company, which is what suppose, actually makes you think about people black and white and charismatic, and they can be, and then you try and weigh up the terrible things they've done and also realising the really, really good things that they may have done as well, that maybe he saved many more lives in other measures. Well, I suppose the first thing that struck me was the fact of the difference between you and I. You're hobnobbing with Henry Kissinger while I'm out getting completely and utterly plastered with Shane McGowan. Touche. So, yeah, I mean... I, his longevity has a lot to do with this, obviously. I mean, I did note with some amusement somebody was uh, tweeting earlier that the financial, the obit in the Financial Times had been prepared so long that one of the writers of that obit had died. And the, the, and the writer who wrote the obit on the guy who died is also dead. So, I mean, so, you know, this guy was around, he outlived probably most of his enemies for a start. But I think he also lived long enough to see a lot of his real politic fall apart as well. Yeah. Um, and I think this is another another point that this he probably would have died a happier man if he died sort of at the height of his powers almost. But a lot of what he put in place has just he has seen the outcomes. He's seen the you know the body counts. He's seen Laos, somewhere like Laos, which is I think has was the most bombed country in the world for nine years. They were pounded, you know, by bombs, and again he was behind that. So I would say he went to his end not really being quite sure what his legacy would be. Larry, briefly, because yeah, we're out of time. I think Kissinger was a quintessential internationalist who thought America had a leaning role to play. One wonders what he made of the inward pivot of the United States in recent years. I'd say he was disgusted by it. Yeah. Larry Donnelly, Lise Hand, thank you both so much. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.